impossible. Well, praise the Lord. Give Jesus one more big hand. And as you're seated, why don't you tell somebody, nothing is impossible with God. Not just a catchy song, but it's a Bible verse. Hey, turn your Bibles, John's Gospel, John chapter 1. And I want to encourage you to, uh, in the coming days, to vote. How many know we as Americans, we still have the privilege uh, of being able to elect our officials that will hopefully stand in our, uh, in our stead and uh, lead us in a good direction? How many know our, our nation's in big trouble? It's in big trouble. It's unraveling at the seams. And uh, so anyway, I hope you take on that responsibility. Uh, Texas is actually early voting now. And actually, you can vote today if you're in Texas at the Bowie County Courthouse or at the downtown uh, by state justice. I'm going to vote today on Sunday, uh, early voting the rest of the week. And then, of course, the election's right around the corner. Uh, Arkansas, I think, votes May 20th. But we've got a little voter information for you. You can look in your, in your bulletin or on the table out front. It's a voter's guide. It's nonpartisan, and it talks about voting records, endorsements, and things. And we've also got sample ballots for you. If you're from Texas, if you want to get one, uh, Democrat or Republican, take it home with you. Look at it, study it, figure out uh, who you're going to vote for, and uh, let your vote make a difference. Because how many know, unless we have a change in America, buddy, we're headed in the wrong direction. And uh, we're going there pretty quick. Well, how many know salvation doesn't come from Washington, though? How many know salvation comes from the Lord? And he's our hope. Let's jump in the Bible. John chapter 1. Last week, uh, I endeavored to summarize the whole Old Testament for you. To this morning, I'm going to endeavor to summarize the New Testament. And the intent was to try to give you a sense of how the whole Bible fits together, how the different pieces fit together, how it makes sense, uh, the key themes. And one thing that we're seeing from Genesis to Revelation is the Bible is really about Jesus. The Bible is really His story. That's actually what I've entitled the message. The Bible is His story. It is from Genesis to Revelation, the story of Jesus Christ, how He came to redeem us, to help buy us back, to make our way back to God. If there is a theme in the Bible, the theme would be, I would say, the overarching theme is that God wants relationship with people for all eternity. And the Bible shows us how to have that very thing with God. Well, as we look in the New Testament today, what we're going to do is we're going to give you first kind of a narrative, how the different books of the New Testament fit together. Uh, we're also going to take some time to explore that in some depth. We're going to talk about some themes in the New Testament. Uh, if you were, for example, taking a drive and there's a mountain range in front of you, the Rocky Mountains, and you're beginning to see the mountains, if you could pick the highest mountains that are there, that's what I want to kind of look at from in terms of the theology and the teachings of the Bible. What's the big picture? We'll spend a little bit of time in the book of Revelation to show you how it all fits together and what the future holds. So I'm really glad you're here. This is something you can download, you can look at, and uh, make it a part of your life. But my hope is that I don't just give you Bible information. My hope is that I will somehow inspire you to be more of a Bible reader. My goal for you for this year, for you and myself, is that we spend at least 15 minutes a day with God. That's the way you connect with God on a personal level. It's kind of the balance to going to church every day sometime with God. I'm certainly not perfect, but I have been uh, the way I've stayed with God for over 30 years, and I credit it to the fact that uh, uh, I just spend time with God every day. 
time reading and time praying, and I, I hope you'll, you'll do the same. So let's jump in together. Um, John chapter 1 is where we left off last week. If you remember, when the Old Testament closed in the book of Malachi, Malachi was a prophet, and he made a prediction that there was coming one day the Messiah, Jesus, would come, but he would also have a forerunner that would come in what was called the spirit of Elijah, the prophet, and lo and behold, John the Baptist fulfilled that role. And here's what John said in John's gospel, John chapter 1, verse 29. John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said the most interesting words. He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You've got to scratch your head a second and say, Why in the world would he call Jesus a lamb? Well, friends, it's because Jesus' act on the cross was a payment for the penalty of sin. He was a substitution. He atoned for our sins. What he did is he fixed what Adam broke so we could have relationship with our Heavenly Father. And John knew that. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me. In other words, he's greater than me because he was before me. Now, did you know that Jesus was born after John the Baptist? But yet John the Baptist said... He is before me. And he's recognizing the fact that Christ is eternal. Jesus is very God. He came down from heaven and he took the form of God the Son, born of a woman. In verse 34, John said, I've seen him born witness that this is the Son of God. So, as we've said, the Bible is his story. So, let's begin this, uh, this, uh, this morning. Let me give you first some, uh, some background of the New Testament. We'll have a bit of a narrative, and then we'll look in a lot of scriptures, uh, as I told you about the themes. Now, the New Testament is a collection of 27 books written by eight or nine different writers over about a 50-year period at the end of the first century. Uh, this, this collection of scripture, it was all written by Jewish authors, the New Testament, except for Luke. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. He wrote the same books to the same person, a Theophilus. Uh, if we said, as we said last week, the Old Testament was the story of God's chosen people, the Jews, who would one day give birth to the Messiah Christ, then the New Testament is the story of the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, composed of Jews and Gentiles uh, that God is assembling on the earth. Now, the New Testament authors came from many walks of life. Peter was a fisherman. Uh, Matthew was a tax collector. Luke was a physician. But they all wrote one consistent story about the life and person of Christ and how we as the body of Christ should behave ourselves and what lies ahead of us in terms of the future. Now, it's very easy to understand this portion of the Bible. The first four books of the Bible called Gospels. Gospel means good news. They are the story of Christ the life and ministry of Christ and how he trained the men and women that would follow after him and carry on the gospel message. It's followed by the book of Acts. The book of Acts is, uh, is basically the history of the early church, but it's also a pattern of church life. In particular, it's a pattern. It's an expectation for us of how the Holy Spirit would use us to be able to have power to be able to take his gospel to the ends of the earth. Uh, the, the, the Acts is followed by the letters or the epistles of Paul as well as some general epistles. This is the larger portion of the New Testament. And these are groups of letters mostly written to churches. For example, Paul wrote to the church at Rome. You have the book of Romans. He wrote to the church of Thessalonica, uh, to the Thessalonians. Uh, Paul wrote to a couple of individuals. He wrote to Timothy, he wrote to Titus. Most of the general epistles are, are named after the person that wrote them. For example, John 1, 2, and 3. First and Second Peter, the book of Jude. Uh, lastly, the book of Revelation 
Here's a book about the end times. So that's kind of in a nutshell. You've got four Gospels. You've got Acts, which is the history and the start of the church. Then you've got letters that are written to folks back then, very applicable to us today. And then the book of Revelation that kind of ties it all together. Now, let me go a little bit deeper in these four categories. The first is the Gospels, and there's four. And what are they? It's Matthew. Yeah, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And again, that's the history of the life of Jesus, life and ministry of Jesus, and how he trained men to carry forth his, his, uh, his, the gospel message. Now, the names of Jesus in the New Testament are very interesting. John, of course, called him the Lamb of God. Uh, Jesus itself is a common name. Uh, Christ is not his last name. Christ means Messiah. His common name it, it represented his identification with you and I as people he came to save. Christ, Messiah, identified him with God's Son, his message is Savior. He's also called the Son of Man, uh, the Son of God. Uh, he's called Savior. He's called the King, the coming King, the King of Kings. He's called Lord. He's called the Lord of Lords. He's called Alpha and Omega, which is the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. He's called the Word or the Word of God. Uh, he's called God and Almighty God. He's even called the beginning and the end. So clearly this was more than just a man. This was the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Now, the gospel accounts typically be begin with genealogies, Matthew and Luke. And these genealogies, one would trace Jesus through his Jewish roots back to Abraham and David. The other genealogy would trace him all the way back to Adam. So as he came both as the Son of God and he came as the Son of Man. Now, we, we know very little of Jesus' early life. The Bible does record his birth. Luke is very extensive. Matthew, to a degree, about his birth, what was going on, the people that were there. We don't know much about his early life. Uh, the Bible really takes off when he steps into his public ministry at about 30. Uh, we see in 30, he begins his ministry by being baptized, water baptized, by John, uh, John the Baptist. Uh, he comes out of the water. Pretty interesting thing that happens. We see the Holy Spirit come to rest on Jesus in his baptism. And we also hear the voice of the Father saying that he's pleased with Christ. And from there, he goes to the oddest place. He goes for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. In other words, let's just go smack him head on. Let's win over him. And, uh, uh, and, and then off he goes on his public ministry. He comes back and he chooses his disciples or his inner core of followers, the 12 men, the disciples or apostles. But what I want you to notice, the first thing he said. And would you agree with me that the first thing a person says uh, and the last thing that they say are probably the most important? The first message of Jesus' ministry, and I want you to say this out loud with me. It's Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, and what did he say? Yeah, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, in my opinion, this word repent is missing in the modern Christian vernacular. We've somehow, because we so value the, uh, our, our belief and faith in Christ, we have forgotten that we're supposed to turn to follow him. You see, the word repent was not just unique to Jesus. It's what John the Baptist told people to do. It's what Peter said on the day of Pentecost, and it's what Paul said in his writings. In other words, when you're living your life, and I don't care if you're, if you're really bad. Uh, I read this week there was a Mexican cartel guy that had shot 800 people and quit counting. I mean, that's pretty bad. 
So you can be that bad. You can, you can be an abortion doctor and have your heart so hardened to what you're doing. Or you just may be someone that tells a white lie every once in a while and still good to people and kind but cheats a little bit and, you know, takes a little advantage of people. How I many know we're all sinners in the eyes of God? But to repent means is to turn and follow Him. And I think where many people confuse themselves, they want God, but they're not willing to turn and follow Him. And in my opinion, that's when conversion happens because conversion implies transformation. I would, much rather, I would much rather have a gourmet meal, but I want it cooked in the microwave. How many know the two are not synonymous? You just can't have that. And in the same way, you can't, just have, you can't just be a Christian by just shaking the preacher's hand and saying, yeah, Jesus, I need you. The mark of the Christian is identified by the transformation of life. And the transformation of life happens when we repent and turn to God. That's when grace floods our life. It's not a work that we do, but it's the turning of our heart to follow Him. And that was His message. And then for three years, Jesus preached. Uh, if you want to see the, what is without a doubt the greatest teaching in the history of the world in terms of what Christ said and represented, go to the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Arguably, Western civilization is built on the Sermon on the Mount. It's no small matter that Moses and the Ten Commandments are at the peak of our Supreme Court building in Washington. But yet, as Americans, we have been systematically throwing God out of our culture for the last 50 or so years, and that's why we're in the mess we're in. And the response of our nation seems to be a stronger federal government, more bullets, more guns, more people to control the people. How many know when the laws of God should control our hearts? You see, if you're truly repentant and born again, God changes you on the inside. Come on, and you'll be the best citizen you can be in America. So the world is in trouble. The Bible has answers. Just, and here's what Jesus did. When he was on this earth, he, he lived in Palestine. Palestine is what we call the Holy Land. It's the land of Israel. For three years, he, he, he made journeys uh, throughout the land of Palestine, teaching people God's ways. He lived a sinless life, which is very important, because that's how he could come to offer his life on behalf of ours. Jesus didn't have to pay for his own sins. He came sinless to pay for our sins. He never gave... Jesus was tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he lived a sinless life. Uh, he healed the sick. He raised the dead. He cast demons out of people. Uh, he cared for the poor. He confronted religious hypocrisy. He fulfilled scores of Old Testament prophecy. Now, if you're skeptical of the claims of Christianity, I would get some good books, conservative books on Christian apologetics, and just think about how Jesus fulfilled prophecies of the Old Testament, predictions that were made about him as specific as where he would be born six or seven hundred years earlier. I mean, it's incredible to let you know that there's something out there, and there's a God, and its name is not evolution. Come on. It is, it is Jehovah. Well, anyway... Uh, but the most important thing he did was his primary purpose. And Jesus told us what, what was his life was about. Now, just before the Passover in John's Gospel, John 12, John's Gospel gives more attention to the life of Jesus the, latter, the last week of his life. Most of John's Gospel really is about the last week of Jesus' life as opposed to telling the whole story. But here's what Jesus said. He said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In other words... When he was crucified, he knew that that would last only a short time and he would have the glory once again he knew when he was with God the Father. So he's about to go back to heaven. But he said, now, verse 27, my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Now, as much as Jesus wanted to come to die for our sins, he was still a man and he had inhibitions. He was, he was I won't say scared, but he didn't want to go there. 
the cost and the price that he would have to pay, the death on the cross, the separation from the Father. But notice what he said, and it's so powerful. Jesus said, and I want you to say this with me, for this purpose I've come to this hour. In other words, I came because I love people, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. But the penalty to pray for our sin was a tough one for Jesus. Well, that's pretty much uh, Jesus. After the crucifixion, though, how many know the great news is he didn't stay dead? He rose back from the grave. He walked the earth for many, many days, training his disciples, and he literally ascended to heaven in the presence of people. And then he said, I'm coming back to see you one day. And he told them he gave us a mission is to take his gospel, make disciples around the whole world. Well, the book of Acts follows. The Acts, if you'll look in your Bible, it may say the Acts of the Apostles, or in some, even the Acts of the Holy Spirit. It is about the birth and the expansion of the church. It is not only a historical record, but I suggest it is a pattern for church life. It should create expectation in us that the same Holy Spirit that gave them power to see people free, to, d- delivered from demonic presence, to have words of prophecy, to see miracles done, to have great faith done, that same Holy Spirit is at work in us today. So this should be a, an inspiration to us that the God who did that in the early church can do that in today's world as well. Acts 1.8 is probably a key verse. Jesus said this. Jesus said, you will receive Power, it's the Greek word dunamis, it's where we get the word dynamite. You'll receive spiritual power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and here's the purpose, and you will be my what? Witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. That's like saying you're going to start your witness in Texarkana, but you're going to go to Miller and Bowie County, and then you're going to take it across America and across the world, and that's why we're doing missions trips, and that's why we do what we do. Now, let me give you the book of Acts in a nutshell. The book of Acts begins as a, Jewish, as a Jewish church. These believers, it's 70 of them, they're gathered in the upper room the day of Pentecost. But at the same time, Jews had come from all over the Roman Empire to celebrate this great feast. They're in the upper room praying in unity. The Holy Spirit falls on them and something incredible happens. They begin to speak in a language that they'd never learned. It's a, it's a language of worship, but it was also understood by the people that were there, and they were amazed because they heard them in their language talking about Christ. Alone, the, uh, the short story is 3,000 people come to Christ. It's an incredible thing, and the church takes off. Now, here's how to understand the book of Acts. The first 12 chapters, the center uh, 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 of the book of Acts is with Jewish people in Jerusalem, and Peter is the main voice. After, the cruci- after Stephen is stoned, the church begins to scatter. And then about Acts 13 and following, it shifts from Peter and Paul as the central person, and the gospel shifts from primarily Jews, and now it begins to focus on Gentiles, which are non-Jews. And and, and the, 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 the town shifts from Jerusalem, and it shifts up to Antioch, which is a Jewish center of Christianity. And the rest of Acts is Paul's three missionary journeys, and then his last journey to Rome, and uh, that's how the gospel spread around the world, and that's how the gospel even got here to Texarkana, because some of the spinoffs of what Paul did. Now, I'm not saying he came to Texarkana, but I'm saying as the gospel came west, he t- others took the gospel and, and, and they brought it here. Well, that's the book of Acts. Now, the epistles, the letters, some are called Pauline epistles, which means they're written by Paul. He wrote most of them. Most of the letters Paul wrote, he wrote to churches. You'll see, for example, the letter to the Corinthians, the letter to the Philippians, the letter to the Ephesians. These were local churches in cities. He wrote a couple to his sons in the faith. The general epistles, uh, that's guys like James and Jude and, and Peter, 
uh, yeah, James, Judy, and Peter, John. Uh, now, these guys, uh, the gospel, their, their letter was named after them. But what the epistles would basically do is four things, whoever wrote them. They would teach truth. They would teach, you know, what was right and what was wrong. Uh, they would correct problems that were going on in the life of the church. They would encourage the believers and they would tell him how local churches were supposed to function. Because again, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church is the body of Christ, the ecclesia, the called out ones. And how many know there is one church across this world and it's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the book of Revelation is an interesting book. The book of Revelation is a series of visions by John the Beloved, John the Apostle, where literally he is, he is in exile how many know when, you, when, when, when the enemy gets you in a pickle, that doesn't mean God's done with you? Amen. You know, and so here the enemy has him exiled to Patmos, and God gives him the, the book of Revelation. So he had a vision, and he saw things about the future. He literally saw the Lord Jesus Christ. He literally had an angel that would instruct him about the future. Now, if you read the book of Revelation, you would see the first few chapters are about addressed to different churches, to the church that's, uh, you know, the church at, I can't even think of them right now, but there's seven different churches early in the book of Revelation, and as he writes this church, uh, he, he, he basically calls them to overcome. It is not just a message just to hang in there, but it's a high standard. And I want you to listen, because I think modern-day Christianity, because our, uh, we are so uh, rightfully concerned that our salvation is only by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not by works, that we almost don't encourage a working salvation. And, and, and Paul, or not Paul, but John was calling the churches of Revelation to step up, to fight sin, to fight impurity, to be strong, to overcome. And it was the one that overcomes, not the one who overcame, was overcame, but the one who overcomes the assault of evil. He's the one that's going to receive God's blessing. So we kind of launch from that point, and then we go into things that are yet to be fulfilled. Now, in this book, he saw things like the, the, the great tribulation. He saw the judgment of God on the world. He saw the persecution of believers. And Revelation is a bloody book. Those that stand for Christ, many will lose their lives in the book of Revelation. I mean, no, we're called not to love our lives unto death. The Bible says in Galatians that we've been bought with a price. Come on, we don't belong to ourselves. Galatians even says, I'm crucified with Christ. That we're literally, Jesus is not just a part of my life, He is my life. That's the commitment of the early church. Well, anyway, he saw the Antichrist. And I would say for the first time in my adult life, I can see how the Antichrist, a one-world leader who is opposed to Christ, could emerge on the world, and the world would say, thank you for coming. World leaders across the world are calling for a one-world government. Come on. You see how interconnected the world is economically, how, how some, some or the derivatives that got packaged wrong and somehow ended up over in Europe and the country that ended up with them and bought them, they all collapsed and it's just going down the chain. Uh, the economic system of the world is a mess. And somebody's going to rise up one day and they're going to offer a solution to that and everybody's going to say, I guess we'll do this. This could happen in our lifetime. It's my hope and prayer uh, that the pre-trib rapture is true <laughs> and we get to go. But I'm telling you, there's lots of believers today across the world that are suffering greatly for Christ. Uh, he talks about the great white throne judgment, heaven, hell, a new heaven and a new earth, and eternity where we spend time with God. Now, that's kind of the overview. You can go pick up those notes. You can download them anytime. But let me give you seven or eight different themes in the New Testament. 
In other words, if you say, what's the New Testament about? I think in these eight, you encompass most everything. And I'm going to move quickly. First of all, salvation is through Christ alone. A person's eternal life is contingent on Jesus. Acts 4.12, the scripture says there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus himself said, I am the way, definite article, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So the question is why? You see, if you pray in America today in the name of Jesus, you're going to get in trouble. It's almost in America the politically correct religion is all religions. And the religion that is persecuted even in America is the Christian religion because of Jesus Christ and what he stands for. But that's the way it is. But only, listen, if you look at the world leaders across time, Confucius, Muhammad, Buddha, uh, you know, just go down the line. You can go visit their tomb. They worship at their shrines. Jesus' tomb is empty. I mean, come on now. It's empty. You're following a dead guy who doesn't have a good track record on earth, who makes some promises about a place called heaven, and he's still there. But it's empty. Jesus was the only one that lived a perfect life and paid our sin debt by his substitutionary death on the cross. That's the first one. Salvation is only through Christ. The second big mountaintop I see is what's called the great commandments. They tell us what's important. I want you to listen to me. You may feel as I felt for many years in my Christian life that the Bible is just too complicated. I don't understand it. It's too big. I don't know what to do. I don't know what verse to follow. I don't know how to live. Let me tell you the most simple fashion. Jesus was asked this question. And when Jesus was asked what was the most important commandment in the Bible, you've got to understand the Old Testament is nothing but a book of rules and laws and regulations. And they had rules and laws for everything. And what they didn't have rules and laws for, the Jewish rabbis wrote down what was called the Midrash, which was basically the rules explaining the rules. So this guy came up to Jesus, scratched his head, and said, Could you tell me what's most important? And I want you to tell you what Jesus said in Mark 12, 28. One of the scribes says, Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus said this. I want you to say it with me. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. That's more important than coming to church, more important than reading your Bible, more important than paying your tithe, more important than... A relationship with God. Now, it doesn't negate the things that we're taught as Christians, but it's about... That's what God wants. He doesn't want you to just go to heaven where you can fish. There'll be lots of turkey hunting in heaven, but I don't know about fishing. But, but, but he wants to have relationship with you in heaven. And he wants a relationship with you right now. And then he went further. He said, the second commandment is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. How different our world would be if in our education system we taught children that there was a God who is holy and just and one day you're going to give an account for Him, so today you better live for Him. How better a place America would be if we taught our children to love your neighbor as yourself because God will hold you in account one day and you'll be rewarded or judged for your actions. I guarantee you we wouldn't have as many kids playing the knockout game. Come on. You wouldn't have as much crack cocaine. You wouldn't have as many rapes. You wouldn't have the violence. You wouldn't need metal detectors at school if we were nurturing people in eternal truth. Okay. 
The Great Commission, Greg. Uh, no, look, look at the third one. For time's sake, I've got to kind of go quick. The Great Commission is our number one job. And it was, what are we on this earth to do other than turkey hunt? <laughs> Work in the garden, okay? That's my two favorite things. No. The Great Commission is our number one job. Mark 16, 15, Jesus said this. Remember, last thing you say in your life, Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Matthew 28, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them. So what's the point? This is the main thing we're supposed to be about. Look, have some fun along the way. Jesus, did, Jesus is not trying to recruit you to work for him 24 hours a day. But what he is saying is, let me be the center of your life, find my will for your life, and then serve me and live for me. Listen, if I've given you the grace to be a cheerleader, you be the best cheerleader you can. But when somebody asks you where you get your skill, put your finger towards heaven and say, it's because of Jesus. Come on. I mean, I mean, if you're an Olympic gold medalist, you work hard, you win the gold medal, and you hold it up. You, how did you do this? You get on one knee and said, I couldn't do anything without the Lord God Almighty. I mean, you, put, you make reaching people, populating heaven, your number one job. But listen now, Jesus told us that people would oppose us. I believe it's in Luke, and they'll follow me. Luke 21, Jesus said, they're going to persecute you. They're going to put you in prison. And then in Acts, I mean, in Ephesians chapter 6, uh, Paul said that not only are people going to oppose you, but evil spirits, Satan's going to try to oppose you. Demons are going to try to stop you in your pursuit of the Great Commission. Governments will try to stop you. They'll try to silence your voice. It's a part of this out there, and you and I cannot be stopped or inhibited or intimidated. Because we're on a mission from God trying to populate heaven with as many people as we can. Now, look, if you don't want to go, that's your business. But it's my job to share the gospel. That's why in our church mission statement, we say very clearly, we want to connect you. Come on, let me see those four fingers. Connect you to God, friends, ministry, and what? The world. And the world means every person that's in need of a Savior. That's why my goal for you this year that I hope you adopt is a pack a week of these little cards. Pick them, out and pick them up on the lobby when you go out. Take some and just when you go to people, say, hey, I want to give you an invitation to my church. You know, I think you'll like it just like I do. Anyway, uh, the Great Commission's our number nine job. Let me give you another one. Romans 12, the fourth one, mountaintop. All believers are a part of one church. Now, I want you to hear this. As you look, it's again, the Old Testament focused on the Jewish race. The New Testament focuses on the church, which is Jew and Gentile. But the church of Jesus Christ, well, let me read it. It's Romans 12, 4. Just as our bodies have many parts, fingers, nose, ears, eye, teeth, each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body, the church. We are many parts of one body, and we belong to each other. So what that means is whether I'm black or white or, or Hispanic or Oriental or whatever my ethnic identity is, and doesn't it just make you so angry that our government seems to divide us based on all these things and pit us against each other? Come on. White people are not the problem. Black people are not the problem. Come on now. People are the problem because sin is in their life. We have a nation of division that tries to make us envy. Come on. Rich people are not the problem. I wish I was rich. How many would like to be rich? Let me see your hand. Come on. But, but, but that doesn't mean I have to make a, a rich person poor so we can be equally poor. I mean, you understand what I'm saying? 
We are one. And when a person becomes a Christian, it doesn't matter the color of my skin. It doesn't matter if I live in Arkansas or Texas. It doesn't matter if I live on that side of town or that side of town or Miller County or Bowie County. What matters is the blood of Christ has washed my sins away. And you are my brother and sister in Christ. And whether the door of my church says Baptist, Methodist, Pentecostal, Assembly, Catholic, uh, Assembly of God, interdenominational, blah, 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 what matters is if Jesus is my Savior, come on, then we are brothers and sisters, and I deserve to treat you with love. Come on. I, I deserve, I, listen, I should be able to worship with you on a Sunday the most segregated hour in America, and when I see you in the grocery store, I ought to come up and love on you just like I love on you in church. Back behind the safe box here. <laughs> Acts chapter 1, the fifth mountain, the Holy Spirit gives us power to live the Christian life. Now you cannot, you'll miss the New Testament if you miss the power of the Holy Spirit that works in us. He does everything. Acts 1.8, Jesus promised you'll receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to do what? To be my witness. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the othermost parts of the earth. The, the book of Acts, one of the, one of the uh, nuances of the book of Acts is, is, is that the Holy Spirit is the work behind, behind it all. The Holy Spirit directs them where to go. The Holy Spirit gives them power to heal the sick. The Holy Spirit gives them prophecy about the future. The Holy Spirit gives them gifts, gives them power. Come on. The Holy Spirit uh, convicts us of righteousness, sin, and judgment. He leads us to Christ. He keeps us in Christ. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us. The Holy Spirit produces Christ-like character in us. And there seems to be, as I read the New Testament, that there was a, a continual desire that the Holy Spirit would come on, uh, on them and fill them with His Spirit. Even in Ephesians, it says, be continually filled with the Spirit. Now, I tell you, I was raised in my early Christian life is that when you became a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside you, which I believe still today. The Bible says, if we have not the Spirit, we're none of His. But I was taught that that's all there is, that the Holy Spirit was a dispensation that's old and gone, and all He does now is save. I'll leave you a scripture if, you're, if that's kind of where you come from. Acts 19, this is worth meditating on. Paul came to Ephesus and found some disciples. I think it's fair to say these are Christians. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they scratched their head and said, we've not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. He goes on to ask them about their baptism. They were baptized with the baptism of John, John the Baptist. He corrects them. They're baptized in water, so clearly they're Christians. But then Paul lays his hands on them. The Holy Spirit does what? came on them, and they began speaking in tongues or other languages that glorified God. It was a prayer language. It was a message to people and prophesying. So I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty intriguing to me. And it makes me every day of my life say, Lord, would you, would you fill me with your Holy Spirit? Would you give me power to be a witness? Now, look, I know it's spooky and weird, but just because people are spooky and weird doesn't mean God's spooky and weird. Come on. So I hope you join me and every day in your prayer say, Lord, give me supernatural power to live this Christian life. Uh, you, you need Holy Spirit power, come on, to love your wife sometimes. That's right. Especially your husband. You need a double anointing of the Holy Spirit sometimes. <laughs> anyway, I don't have time. I've got to move. The next mountain, we're called to live a righteous life in an evil world. Now listen to me, because I, I, I would imagine this room is filled with people who are just like me, who have a side of you that would rather do wrong rather than right. 
Now, I know the person next to you. I'm not sure about the guy wearing your shoes. But listen to the Bible. It says, exercise self-control. Tell yourself no. Punch your neighbor and say no is a good word. When do you use no? Well, when you got the flipper in your hand and the sex scene's coming on TV. Or they've already dropped the F-bomb and it's only been 30 seconds in the show. Those are good times to exercise self-control. Okay? Or when somebody calls you up on Facebook. I, 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 have, I try to have, be friends with everybody. I want people to like me on Facebook so I befriend people. And then I have these women hitting on me. Well, I either witness to them, erase them, or let my wife talk to them. But, but the point is, you need to say no. You don't just need to send her your email. Exercise self-control. Look forward to your gracious salvation that's coming when Jesus is revealed to the world. Second coming, friend. Serious question. How would you like to be dabbling in your secret sin when Jesus comes back? Ooh, I hope and pray for the grace and covering of God. But that would be one embarrassing moment. And now look at verse 14. You must live how? As God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your old desires. Now look, if you're hanging out with the people that are doing the old stuff, they're going to pull you back in. I'm just telling you. If you're listening to the old music, you're going to start tapping your toe and you're going to be doing it again. It's just the way it works. But now you must be what? Holy in... That's impossible in your own human strength, but with the power of the Holy Spirit it is. To be holy simply means to be separated to God. It doesn't mean you're a holy Joe out of touch with the world, but it means that you're godly. Just as God who chose you is holy. Uh, let me give you the last one here. The last, uh, the last mountaintop I see is that we must all give an account to God on Judgment Day. Now, turn me back on. I need about five more minutes. Who will give me five minutes here? Five, 10, 15, 20. I don't need that much. I just need five. But, but, but if, if you've turned me off now, for whatever reason, I want you to turn me back on, okay? I'm going to tell you where you're going to be one day. Revelation 20, the Bible is about to close. I saw a great white throne and one sitting on it. This is God at Judgment Day. In verse 12, I saw the dead, great and small, I saw Bill Clinton. I saw, I saw the custodian. Come on. I saw Julius Caesar. I saw everybody standing before God's throne. And books were open. These books suggest that God has recorded in other places in the Scripture. I mean, if, if God knows every idle thought we think, He knows the actions that we do, and He's writing these things down. He's got the biggest, He's got computers way bigger than the NSA, okay? I don't know how He's doing this, but they never break down, or some angel is just scribbling fast. But God is recording. We're laughing, including the book of life. Now, the book of life is the most important book there is. Now, I'm going to vote today, but they're not going to let me vote unless I show them a photo ID, and then they're going to see if my name is in the book of my district. That's an important book, but the book of life is the most important. And you get your name written in the book of life when you commit your life to Christ, when you receive Him as your Savior, when you turn to follow Him as your Lord. I'll give you a chance to pray and commit your life to Christ at the end of the service. Not to join our church. I don't want anything from you. But to lead you to Christ. It is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done. How many know we're in trouble? How many know even Mother Teresa's in trouble? Because it only takes one sin to make a sinner. The dead were judged as recorded in the books. Now verse 15 is so sobering. Anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown 
into the lake of fire. The Bible says hell is a literal, real place. It's not a mythical place. It's not something that ignorant people made up when they didn't know how to control people like we do today. Come on. Uh, it's not just some mythology kind of thing and all that. It's missing in a lot of Christian messages today because people don't want to hear it. But I'm telling you, the Bible speaks of a judgment day. Now, how many know you don't have to go there on that bad day? You can, you, on your day, when you stand before Christ, and the books are open on your name when it says John Miller, I assume this is how it's going to work, but I'm going to instantly have Jesus Christ come standing by and in front of me, getting in front of me, saying, I've covered him. Come on, the blood has covered him, his sin. Next. Next. Let me wrap up here. Revelation 21. Let's, let's conclude the Bible with pictures of heaven and eternity and the coming of Christ. Revelation 21, John said, now, in this chapter, John saw a new heaven and a new earth. I don't, I, somehow this earth is going to be destroyed. I'm all for taking care of the planet, but listen, take more care of people than you do the planet because the planet's going to be redone. People are going to be eternal. That's a biblical worldview. Well, I didn't mean to get off on that. I heard a loud voice. So a new heaven and a new earth. And John said he saw the new Jerusalem, a holy city coming out of heaven. I, I assume that that's the place where God will dwell with his people. Um, it goes on to say, and they will be his people. God uh, is the dwelling place of God with man. He'll dwell with them. They'll be his people. And I want you to say this with me. God himself will be with them as their God. Isn't that exactly what Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden? Isn't that exactly in Genesis 1 and 2, before Satan came in with the tempter? They had this fellowship. And from Genesis all the way to the end of time, Satan has messed things up. But God is calling out a people, preparing them to be his followers, that now know the power of choice and have chosen him. Are you with me? That's maybe what this whole issue of time is about, the power of choice and that we have chosen God because we know what the other side is like and our love for him is willful, not forced or not robotic. He's going to be with us. In verse 4, he'll wipe away every tear. Death shall be no more. No more mourning, no crying, no more pain for the former things have passed away. So doesn't it make sense not to spend too much time living for the former things? Come on. Because all the TVs, all the turkey hunts, maybe, uh, well, all the TVs and, 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 and everything is all going to be over one day. And only what's Christ for last. Let me close with the last words of the Bible. It's Revelation chapter 22. John the Revelator says, He who testifies to these things, which is Jesus, says, Surely I am coming soon, which implies we want to be ready. Living for the Master, doing His work. Jesus says, I'm coming soon. And our response is, Amen. What? Come, Lord Jesus. So I want to have more anticipation for the coming of Christ than I am for the next World Series. Come, Lord Jesus. And then he closes by saying this, The grace or the goodness and kindness of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Well, friends, that's your Bible. Time is over. Satan has been crushed, fulfilling the prophecy of Genesis 3. Remember that he's going to crush his head. Satan's going to get his heel of Jesus, but Jesus crushing his head. That's happened. Satan is gone already. Those that have rejected Christ are in a Christless eternity. And you that have accepted Christ as your Savior, come on, will live with him forever and ever and evermore. 
because he is a good God and he is loving and just and he wants relationship with his people. Come on, give him a big hand today. He's worthy of our praise. Praise the Lord. You ought to go back and get those notes the last couple of weeks and go over them. It'll just help give you a framework for the Bible. I want to close with this. We, want, we always have a time of prayer. We normally do it in the middle of worship, but uh, we have communion today. But I don't want you to leave today if you've got some needs in your life that you need God to help you with. I think the worst thing you can do is come to church with a deep burden and leave church with a deep burden. There's something about praying with another person because you've come not just to talk to them. You've come to God, and they're just standing with you. I ask, we, we, we in our staff meetings, we say, do you feel the Holy Spirit saying anything in the service that we need to do? And one of our pastors said, you know, I just feel like there's people that are overwhelmed. And I said, absolutely right. How I many know if you're, you can come to church overwhelmed, and if you cast your burden on the Lord, you can go back and face your problem, come on, not in fear, but with faith. You can have a sense of God's peace. But we'll pray for anything in your life, for anyone you love and care about, any burden you carry. But there's one last prayer that I'd like, a petition I'd like to make. And, and it's about that book of life. And, and I want to ask this question, and stay with me now. Are you 100% sure your name is written in the book of life? I'm not asking hope so, think so, cross your fingers, maybe so. I'm asking you today, if you were to die today, are you 100% sure you'd go to heaven? See, because the Bible teaches us it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. There's no do-overs called reincarnation. There's no thing called second chances. We get to live for Christ. And I, and I would like to be, if I could today, the Lord's messenger asking you if you'd like to follow Christ. Asking you today the same thing a Gideon asked me in August of 1976. Would you like to turn your heart and follow Jesus? Do you need the forgiveness that only Christ offers? Have you ever committed your life to follow Him? Have you ever received Him as your Lord and Savior? Because if you haven't, today can be your day. Today can be the day where you say, Jesus, I want to be saved. I want to have my sins washed away, and I want to commit my life to follow you. My friend, I promise you, it can revolutionize your life when you make the decision to turn your back on your old, to put your faith in Christ, and follow Him. For some that are here today, it may be the first time you've ever prayed like this. I commend you. For others, you could be like most of us in this room as a Christian. You've gotten away from God. You don't know how, but boy, you just sense God's presence and you feel God your Father calling you through my words right now to recommit your life to Christ. Whatever it may be today, but if you're feeling to give your life to Christ, to be saved, to have God's forgiveness, and you want to follow Jesus, let us pray for you. If that's you, lift your hand real quickly. Do quickly say, pray for me, Pastor. I want to commit my life to Christ today. God bless you, dear. God bless you. God bless you. Give her a big hand. Somebody else said, pray for me. I'm out of time. Anybody else say, pray for me today. I want to give my life to Christ today. I want to be sure. God bless you. Why don't you all stand to your feet? We're going to have a closing prayer. And uh, I want to ask you, dear, if you'll come and let somebody pray with you right in front of the cross. They want to give you something and help you. I need a couple ladies right over here. Tina, why don't you help us here as she's coming? Give her one more big hand. We're very, very proud of you. Somebody will meet you right over there. We're going to close with prayer now. Our prayer team will be around the altar. And if you need for just a moment to someone pray for you, you come and let us pray as they're coming now. Go ahead and sing it one last time, Zach, and, and then we'll dismiss. I love you and thanks for coming. Come let us pray for you. Angels, bow before.